So I was thinking about this service and thinking about in God's providence where we are. I was encouraged that at the end of this chapter, which is where we're headed, there is a baptism. There are those who were listening to the gospel message, and God very obviously worked. And these who were listening to the message believed, and Peter argues at the end of the chapter here, Surely no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized. He says, who received the Holy Spirit just as we did, can he? And he ordered them to be baptized. So we began looking at Acts chapter 10, which titled the message, The Conversion of Cornelius. But beyond just Cornelius, as we look at this chapter, we see that there are more uh, people at his house who have gathered, there are more people who come and believe. And we'll see that as we go along here. Just a review, we've looked at uh, two visions in Acts chapter 10. We looked at the vision that Cornelius had of an angel who came to him and told him, among other things, that his prayer had ascended his alms that he had been giving to the people of Israel had ascended as a memorial before God, and then he calls them or tells him to send for uh, Peter, who is in Joppa. That took place as we study the passage at the hour of prayer. Peter also, as he goes up to pray on the rooftop where he's staying in Joppa, the house of Simon the Tanner, has a vision, a vision he doesn't fully understand as he sees it. It's a vision of a sheet coming down from heaven with all sorts of animals in it, unclean animals. He's told to rise up, kill, and eat these animals, but he objects, and then the Lord gives him some instruction. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And that happens three times, and so three times Peter hears the words, what God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And he is perplexed about what this vision means, but then receives from Cornelius's household these messengers, a soldier and two others who come and call Peter to come to Caesarea uh, over a day's journey away. And so they stay the night. Verse 23 says, so he invited them in and gave them lodging. Now, the unusual thing about that, as we see the chapter unfold, is that these are Gentiles. These are people with whom Peter would normally have nothing to do with. But he is beginning to understand what God is doing, what God is teaching him through this vision. And so... I think the application begins before Peter fully expresses it. We'll see a little bit later here in the latter part of the chapter how he concludes what God has told him. Look at the middle of verse 23 there. It says, On the next day he got up and went away with them, and some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. On the following day he entered Caesarea. Now Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. 
When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter raised him up, saying, Stand up, I too am just a man. As he talked with him, he entered and found many people assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That is why I came without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So I asked for what reason you've sent for me. Cornelius said four days ago to this hour, I was praying in my house during the ninth hour and behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is also called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at this house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. Now then, we are all here present before God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. I don't want to take too long of a time on this section. It certainly is interesting that Peter, as he arrives at the home of Cornelius in Caesarea, is met with some unexpected things. He knows about Cornelius. Uh, I doubt anybody is expecting what Cornelius does in verse 25. He immediately has to correct Cornelius because Cornelius, when Peter enters, falls at his feet, bows down before him in what appears to be an act of worship. And if you've ever been overwhelmed, sometimes you lose consciousness of what you're doing. You just do what you think is the right thing in the context. Of course, Peter himself had times where he did things that he sure didn't anticipate, if you think of the transfiguration, and said, let us make three tabernacles here, one for you and Moses and Elijah, and that wasn't God's purpose. But here he's actually bowing down Cornelius is and worshiping him. But Peter corrects him and says, stand up. I too am a man. Peter's not thinking of himself in any special way, though he is an apostle. He doesn't merit worship. John, the apostle, if we look at Revelation 19 and 22, also did this when he was given revelation and was overcome in the moment. He bowed down before the angel, and the angel, once in Revelation 19 and another time in Revelation 22.8, corrected the apostle John. So it's possible that someone could be mistaken. And, of course, Cornelius yet does not fully understand the gospel. Peter makes an observation in verse 27. So the correction of Cornelius and then an observation. Peter finds when he walks in and is talking with Cornelius, there are many people assembled. There's a lot of people there. There's just one name, Cornelius, and he knew these three, the two servants of Cornelius and the soldier, but what he found when he entered this house is that there are a lot of people there. Something that God is doing, and of course, based on what we understand of the circumstances, these are all Gentiles. So if Peter's getting his hands dirty, so to speak, he's really getting his hands dirty. He's jumping in. But he has come to an understanding of something, and we see that as he explains it in this chapter. We, we see him explaining his predicament. Verse 28 
he describes how it is not lawful for him to even associate with foreigners or visit foreigners. That would be Gentiles. The Jews at this point in their history, and you can see it even in the Gospels, would not associate with Samaritans. They would not associate with Gentiles. They considered them to be unclean. That seems to be a development within Israel's history because in the Old Testament, remember, they were strangers in the land of Egypt, and God told them when they came out of Egypt and into the promised land that they were to be kind to strangers, actually receive and welcome strangers. Exodus chapter 23, verse 9 says, You shall not oppress a stranger, since you yourselves know the feelings of a stranger or the soul of a stranger, for you also were strangers in the land of Egypt. So that was the law that was specified, but what came about as a result, it seems, of the fact that they'd been exiled in foreign lands with people who mistreated them is that there began to be an antipathy between the Jews and the people who were their captors. And eventually when they came back into the land, with any Gentile, and especially now for the Romans who were really in charge of Judea at this time, there was hostility and there was viewing these Gentiles as unclean. They're not worshipers of God, or even if they are, they still have to be held at a distance because they're unclean and we're the chosen people. You can see sometimes in the gospel story how the Jews did not even do certain things that you would say, what's wrong with that? But they considered it defiling. They considered it an unclean thing to have interaction with Gentiles. When Jesus was led from Caiaphas into Pilate's residence, the Scripture says it was early, and they, that is, those who were following and accusing Jesus, themselves did not enter into the praetorium or that residence so that they would not be defiled but might eat the Passover. They considered it an unclean thing. So it kind of became this custom slash law. I mean, Peter says it's actually unlawful, verse 28, for a Jew to even associate with or visit with, certainly eat a meal with, spend any time with, someone who is a Gentile. Look at verse 29, excuse me, verse 28, as he is explaining that. He says, and then, or yet, he says, God has shown me that I should not call any man unholy or unclean. That's his interpretation of the vision that he's seen. So it's really not about animals per se. It's about something that had been a part of his framework and his thinking about calling certain things unclean and certain people unclean. Why did God even give those laws about clean and unclean animals? It was in part to distinguish this group of people by their laws and their practices for other, from other people in the world. Why do that? Well, in part so that the Messiah would be recognizable when he came into the world. So you have Peter's explanation here that God has actually shown him now that he shouldn't call any man unholy or unclean. And that's why he said, I came 
without even raising any objection when I was sent for. So again, he doesn't know the full picture here. All he knows is what God has told him. Don't call what I've cleansed unclean. So these Gentiles who are formerly in his mind unclean have called him, but he, he believes that God is actually sending him a message that he should go with them and actually come to the household of Cornelius. And then he says, verse 29, so I asked for what reason you sent me. What's this about? Came all the way from Joppa over night journey, along with these three servants of Cornelius. So then Cornelius gives him more detail of what his servants had given. If you look back at verse 22, they introduce Cornelius and who he is and talk about the angel, talk about needing to hear a message from Peter, but now Peter hears it from Cornelius himself. Again, very interesting timing here. Verse 30 says, four days ago to this hour. So we know what time this took place. Three o'clock in the afternoon. The hour of prayer. That's when they're talking. So you've got, certainly within Cornelius' own practice, this is normally his prayer time. This would be the prayer time at Jerusalem. If John kept up the custom that he had with Peter before they left Jerusalem, and if the other Jews also had this custom, this would be the hour of prayer where God is doing something, where he's brought these two together. So this is the ninth hour. And then we get a little more detail about the angelic vision. End of verse 30, Cornelius says, And behold, a man stood before me in shining garments. And he said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered before God. Therefore, send to Joppa and invite Simon, who is called Peter, to come to you. He is staying at the house of Simon the Tanner by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and you've been kind enough to come, or you have done well to come. And so he's really told him not a whole lot more than we already knew in the chapter, except there is this element. Imagine this. P Peter's called to come. He, he knows that he's supposed to come to the Gentiles. And Cornelius is just sort of like, all right, you're here. What do you have to say? Well, what's the message you have for us? And of course, Peter, sensitive to God's leading, had preached the gospel many times before. But now he's seeing what God is doing. And even as he opens his mouth to preach the message that he preaches, he underscores this truth about God that enables him to preach very freely to this group of Gentiles. What is his leading thought? Well, opening his mouth, verse 34, as Peter responds to Cornelius's request to speak everything. Notice what it says at the end of verse 33, all that you have been commanded by the Lord. That actually kind of directs Peter, doesn't it? Because Peter had been commanded by the Lord to preach or teach certain things. It wasn't everything. It was the gospel message. It was the news about Jesus Christ. So Peter opens his mouth 
And here are his leading thoughts. Number one, the impartiality of God. Verse 34, opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. He's talking to a group of Gentiles, Gentiles who were on the outside of the group when the synagogue met, Gentiles who were considered unclean, but while man might have divisions and show partiality and have a special group here, God is not showing partiality. Notice he continues, verse 35, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Now, to a certain extent, if you look at that statement, Someone called that a truism, just something that you might say, well, that's obvious. Peter is not suggesting by saying that another way of salvation, as if you're a part of any other nation and you just fear God and do what's right, then you've earned your salvation. He actually is talking about genuine faith, which is expressed in the fear of the Lord, and practical obedience, the faith that actually works, faith that issues forth in obedience to God. There is a kind of faith that's not genuine faith. It's just a profession with no power to actually obey God. But the kind of faith that Peter's talking about is a genuine faith, someone who not only fears and has reverence for God, but then practically works in his life to obey God. That's the idea of when it says does what is right, the word is, it means to work righteousness. What is righteousness? That's obedience to God. So really, it's any person who has faith in God. God is without partiality. It's not only the Jewish people that could be singled out for special treatment and salvation, but the rest of the world can go to hell. That's not how God has done things. And you can even see through the history of the Old Testament that God saved people outside of Israel. Read the book of Jonah. You see all those Ninevites and even the sailors on the ship who tossed Jonah over. They came to understand and know the one true God. But God is impartial. And this is, you look up that truth in Scripture, you'll find many verses that testify to the impartiality of God. When it comes to His judgment, He's impartial. He says in Romans, Paul says in Romans chapter 2, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life, but to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. The glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for there is no partiality with God. Judgment, reward. Ephesians 6, 9 says that God judges slaves as well as earthly masters the same. There's not a partiality just because someone holds a position. 
James chapter 2 and verse 1 and the following verses, God judges rich and poor alike. He doesn't judge one person because they have a lot of wealth differently than the person who doesn't. He's an impartial judge. And so when it's a matter of salvation, again, the end of verse 35, this one who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. Now, we understand more because Peter preaches more. What does it mean to be welcome to him, to be at peace? And he talks about peace in verse 36. What does it mean to be right with God? Notice that in verse 36, it says, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. So one of his leading thoughts is the impartiality of God. Another leading thought is the gracious message of peace from God. Now that gracious message of peace began with what words when Jesus began preaching? What were Jesus' words when he started to preach the gospel? repent? What were John's words as he prepared a people to meet the Lord? Repent? Well, how does repent fit into this message of peace? Why is it repentance is that is part of the gospel? And the answer is because unless men repent, they show they are at war with God by their disobedience by their transgressing the law of God. Sinners are not at peace with God. Jesus and John preaching the gospel were calling for people to repent, to lay down their rebellion, their arms of rebellion, and submit themselves to God. That would bring peace and right relationship between them and God. We are considering this morning in Christian Life Hour Downstairs, Romans chapter 8, the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it is not, does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Paul said in Colossians chapter 1 that those who were, before they were saved, were engaged in evil deeds. If someone is engaged in evil deeds, that means they're showing hostility to God. They're not at peace with God. So the way to be at peace with God is to turn from your sin, to lay down your arms of rebellion, and certainly seek forgiveness from God for the sin. And that peace is made possible, as Paul says in Colossians, by the blood of his cross, through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, and then through justification, Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ as He declares us righteous through faith in Christ, and then we have peace. We turn from our rebellion and sin. We submit ourselves to the Lordship of Christ. We receive the gift of salvation, which was accomplished as He laid down His life as a substitute for me, for my sins on the cross. That blood that was shed achieves that peace and makes the way for me to be right with God because my sins are forgiven. Peter's used to preaching that message. He saw Jesus preach it many times. 
He says, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. And we know that Jesus first came to Israel. He didn't come to the Gentiles. When he told his disciples to go out and preach, he said, don't go in the way of Gentiles. Only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He calls them and tells them to go and preach to that nation. So when it says in verse 36, the word which he sent to the sons of Israel, yes, it was sent to them. And yes, it is peace through Jesus Christ. But here's the, here's the new development, if we could say it here, at least in, in terms of now what Peter understands and what God is doing is that this isn't limited just to the Jewish nation. We know that from looking at the Ninevites in the Old Testament, people like Rahab and other people who came to belief in the one true God. But here is a household of Gentiles and friends and relatives of, of Cornelius and Peter recognizes that in this moment, God is not partial. He wants me to preach this message of Jesus Christ and the peace that comes through him to all of these Gentiles so that they might have life through him because he's Lord of all. Look at that. It's in parentheses in the New American Standard. Other translations put those words in parentheses. Why is it in parentheses? Some have suggested that this is actually Peter's title to his message. It's kind of introduction for the first part here up to this moment. And then he says, he is Lord of all. It certainly is a major theme as his purpose is to draw attention to the Lordship of Christ. Even at the end of the sermon, the fact that Christ is going to judge every single person living and dead unbelieving, believing. So he really is Lord of all. He's the Lord of the Jews. We've already read in the book of Acts here that he has been preached to the Samaritans and many Samaritans believed and he's Lord of the Samaritans. But now here's this Italian centurion and all of his friends and his relatives who've come to his house. And yes, as these respond to the preaching of the gospel, whether they do or not, Jesus is still their Lord. He's Lord of all. I say he's still their Lord because he is the Messiah. He is the one who has absolute authority. What did he say when he rose from the dead before he ascended into heaven? All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and preach the gospel or go make disciples of all the nations. The lordship of Jesus Christ certainly extends to this group of people and far beyond this small group of Gentiles to the farthest lands, to the farthest islands all around the world. This not only is my father's world, this is the world that belongs to his son, the Messiah. Ask of me, he said in Psalm 2 and I will give you the nations for your inheritance, the uttermost parts of the earth for your possession. This is the message of the gospel. But in order to make sure, as Peter is preaching this message, he's going to give testimony on the basis of his own eyewitness, as well as the eyewitness of the Jews who observed the life of Jesus of Nazareth. So as he preaches the gospel here, he draws attention to the identity of Jesus and his historical ministry. Look at verse 
37, it says, You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee, after the baptism which John proclaimed. He's marking out a time where John has proclaimed this gospel, or the, the gospel and the baptism of repentance, and now the ministry of Jesus has begun. And this was no secret. Jesus' life and ministry was well-known throughout Israel, well-known. Whenever he came to Jerusalem, the people knew who he was. They didn't necessarily believe the truth about him, but they knew who he was. They knew the claims of things that he had done. But Peter is confident enough to, to, to say that even this Gentile household knows who he is. Notice what it says, verse 38, you know of Jesus of Nazareth. That's the Jesus we're talking about. Identifying him in terms of that earthly place of his boyhood, where he grew up, where he was known to be from. So you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. You know that the word anointed one or anointing has relation to the word Christ, Christos. That's what Christ means, the anointed one. Mashiach or Messiah, he's the anointed one. What does that mean? Well, someone was anointed if they were given either the ministry of being a prophet in the Old Testament. Elisha was anointed for his ministry. A priest, you can see the anointing of Aaron and his sons prior to their high priesthood. And then, of course, more familiar to all of us is kings, because David, Saul was anointed first, but then David was anointed. And when David was anointed, you look at the text, it says the Spirit of God came upon him from that day forward. So the presence of the Spirit and the anointing by oil, the oil was symbolic the reality was the presence of the Spirit. Now, here's the anointed one, and he has all three offices, prophet, priest, and king. So when it says here that God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, there is a moment at which that happens during his earthly life. It was when he was baptized. As Jesus came and John was baptizing, Jesus went to the river and was baptized by John, and John said himself that this was one way he understood who Jesus was as the Messiah, as, as he baptized him. And Luke says, as Jesus was praying, the Holy Spirit came down like a dove, descended upon Christ, and remained upon him. And so that his ministry and everything that Jesus did was in the power of the Spirit. And that's an amazing thing to observe as Jesus, look at what it says here, God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. What kind of power? Power to do good. Power to heal the sick. Power to cleanse lepers. Power to raise the dead. Power to cast out demons. All of these good things that Jesus was doing, he's empowered by the Holy Spirit to do. Matthew 4 says Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom 
and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. The news about him spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And there's a particular emphasis here in healing those who are oppressed by the devil. He healed those all who were oppressed by the devil. I'm reading a book right now, connection with our Christology class on Thursday nights. It's called Name Above All Names. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson and Alistair Begg, as they write about Christ, the first chapter is about his being the seed of the woman who is in conflict with the serpent, the devil, and his seed. So there's this conflict between what is good and ultimately Christ and evil and the devil. That conflict began certainly in the garden. It continues to this very day. And in the Gospels, Jesus was confronted with evil at a scale that I think as you look at the Word of God, you'd have to say is unusual. Why is that? Suddenly Jesus is walking the streets of Jerusalem or he's going throughout Judea and he's being, even in synagogues, confronted with the reality of demons. They're all over the place, it seems. Some have suggested, and this is part of why I brought up the book, that that is because that was just commonplace at that time for demonic possession just to be a part of life. And the authors argue otherwise. They said the reason there is so much demon possession in the time period recorded by the Gospels is not as is sometimes assumed that demon possession was commonplace then. In fact, it was not. Rather, the land was demon-invaded because the Savior was marching to the victory promised in Genesis 3.15, and all hell was let loose in order to withstand it. So Jesus comes on the scene, the Son of God, and what is the devil doing but opposing him at every hand, even in synagogue services, church services, the devil present. I read this last week, a pastor who talked about when he prayed, he was thankful because he knew that God was listening and he was talking to God. But he said, when I preach, the devil's out there. Don't think that he is not active in opposing the work of God. And what was the devil doing? He was oppressing People could not hear. People could not speak because of the oppression of the devil. He was dominating them. He was exploiting them. He made a man tear off all of his clothes and run through the tombs and cut himself and cry out. And no one could restrain him. He was so uncontrolled. 
And by the time Jesus had cast out those demons, he was sitting at his feet in his right mind, clothed, waiting for the teaching of Jesus. That's the power of God. And it pushes back against the oppression, not only pushes back, but delivers those who are oppressed by the devil. Notice the end of verse 38, for God was with him. What does it mean that God was with him? Well, certainly he prayed to the Father. The Father was with him in that sense. But the Spirit of God was upon him. One writer said that he was his inseparable companion. All the activity of Christ was unfolded in the presence of the Holy Spirit. That is why this author said his witness is so important, potent, and reliable. From womb to tomb to throne, the Spirit was the constant companion of the Son. And so when Mary Magdalene had seven demons and she's delivered, what happens to Mary? She becomes a follower who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing inappropriate there. She'd been delivered from the devil. She was following Christ, serving Christ, telling others about Christ, a worshiper of Jesus, devoted to him, going even to his tomb after he had been buried and not knowing that he was resurrected. God had changed her life. God was with Christ, and when his power was manifested, not only was he healing those who were oppressed by the devil, he was delivering them. Unless we think these are just stories, here's Peter's testimony, verse 39. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Have you ever considered that the testimony that we have in the Gospels, and even this here, is eyewitness testimony? It's eyewitness. And of course, there are many people who would love to take the Bible and undermine its credibility, but the Bible actually has more manuscript evidence than many other pieces of literature that people would just say, oh yeah, that's, that's Julius Caesar, that's whoever the writer may be. There's a lot fewer manuscripts. We believe by faith. We don't put our faith in the number of manuscripts. I'm just saying there's plenty to attest to the truthfulness of these records, these eyewitness records. Peter says, we are witnesses of these things. They saw these things happen. And the end of verse 39, not only did they see his works, they also saw his substitutionary death and his resurrection. We find here Peter testifying to the historical fact of the crucifixion of Jesus and his death. Notice what it says. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross, literally on wood. Now, there's, there's so much in this sermon, but let's not miss as Peter preaches the gospel here, that he's drawing attention to the death of Christ. Essential, as he died upon the cross, 
to take the place of sinners, to pay the debt that sinners had towards God. He endured the wrath of God by his death. He endured the curse. Verse 39, the last word is oftentimes translated cross, but it's actually a tree. There's an allusion here in Peter's writings. There certainly is a direct reference in Paul's where Paul quotes the text in the Old Testament, which says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus went about doing good, casting out demons, doing all sorts of good things by the power of God, the Holy Spirit upon him. And what did they do in the end? They didn't believe his words, which were the truth, and they crucified him. And they hung him on a tree, just like the king of Ai was hung on a tree, just like you could say Haman was hung on a tree, these cursed ones in the Old Testament hung on a tree. So what in the world is Jesus doing hanging on a tree? He didn't sin. He didn't deserve that. They said he blasphemed. But of course, he spoke the truth. He came to testify to the truth. And the truth was, he is the Messiah. So Peter gives testimony to the historical death of Christ by crucifixion. And then verse 40, his resurrection, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. And hastening on here, we see the historical fact of his resurrection and the eyewitness testimony to that fact, as Peter not only says it, that God raised him up on the third day and granted that he became visible, but also there are witnesses to that. And he says, I'm a part of it. Notice that, verse 41, not to all the people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, that is to us. Here is a firsthand witness to the resurrection of Christ who's come from Jerusalem all the way over to Joppa and now up to Caesarea at the command of God to tell this group of people gathered that yes, Jesus has risen. I saw him myself. I actually ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. There's another historical fact based upon eyewitness evidence. Paul says there are more than 500 in 1 Corinthians that saw him. Peter here is saying, I saw him myself. And certainly John, others would say the same thing. The apostles were to testify to the resurrection of Christ, but that's not all. Look at verse 42. It says, and he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. So we've had the historical fact of his death by crucifixion, historical fact of his resurrection, the eyewitness testimony to that. But here we have the appointment of Jesus as the judge of all the living, I believe that refers to those who believe and have life through his name, and the dead, that is, those who do not believe, and yet they will still stand. There's not a person ever born or lived on this earth who will not stand before God. He's Lord of all. This kind of bookends that point in this message. He's Lord of all. So everyone is going to face him. And yes, that ought to strike fear in the, one, the heart of the one who is resisting him, because you will face Jesus Christ. There's no question about that. There's many other places in Scripture that testify to that. 
Paul was convinced that we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And that's the testimony. But there is forgiveness of sins if you put your trust in him. And this is where Peter, to a certain extent, is drawing attention to the scriptural teaching that there's forgiveness of sins through Christ. Of him, verse 43, it says, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Notice the the object of faith is Christ. What is necessary to receive forgiveness of sins? Simply belief, faith. It's not works. It's not baptism. We're kind of have baptisms today, Lord willing. It's not baptism that saves. It's faith in Christ that saves. It's faith in Christ. Through that, someone has their sins forgiven as they place their trust in what Jesus has done. Now, Peter is still preaching. So are you, Pastor Joel, right? Peter's still preaching. But what happens as he's still preaching is that God starts to work in the lives of these Gentiles who are present in an amazing way. Look at it, verse 44. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message, all those. This whole household of Cornelius and his family and his friends that are gathered, this many people, based on what is said earlier on, the Holy Spirit falls upon all of them. And you have very similar, it seems, to what happened on the day of Pentecost. Verse 45, the people, remember these individuals who came with Peter from Joppa, they're watching. Verse 45 says, all the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. What? The Gentiles? So this isn't, this isn't Pentecost, and this isn't Samaria. This is the Gentiles, and God is now working among them, yes, because he's Lord of all, Right? Verse 46, for they were here was the evidence of how they, they understood that the Holy Spirit had come. They were hearing them speaking with tongues, that is, languages, known languages that they did not know, but exalting God. And Peter, in light of that evidence, knows now the Spirit has come upon these people. Surely, verse 47, no one can refuse the water for these to be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we did. Can he? Can he? And of course, the answer is no. This is evidence of their salvation. This is evidence that the Holy Spirit has, been, has come into their life and into their heart and has changed them. They have faith in this message that Peter was preaching. And that's something that I think as we look at this passage, we have to remember it's not just the supernatural activity of God, it's faith in the heart of each of these people who were listening to the message. And here's where we get to the baptism. Notice here, verse 48, he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. I don't know that that surprises any of us. It is a command Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing. That's an implied command. But this is Peter who's been preaching, and they believe, and there's evidence that they believe, and the Holy Spirit is present, and he says, 
these men need to be have these men baptized. Now think about it. There's a household of Gentiles. Peter is there. Guess who gets to do the baptizing? Who is it based on the passage? I mean, Peter's getting his hands dirty, so to speak. You understand what I'm saying? These six brothers from Joppa have some work to do because there's a lot of people here who need to be baptized. It's not that Peter couldn't baptize. It's that Peter knew that what needed to, be, needed to happen was Christ said to baptize those who believe, those who become disciples, and so baptize these men. For one person to baptize a big household like that would have been a lot. And so I don't know what that looked like if they went down to the river, they went down to the ocean, they're in Caesarea, could have gone down to the beach. Whatever they did, they went and baptized these people who had believed in Jesus Christ. They had believed in the message of the gospel that Peter had just preached. Now, later on, as this story is told in the next chapter, the message that Peter preached is defined as words by which a person could be saved. What we just went through is the message of salvation. Eternal salvation for all who would believe. That's the message about Jesus Christ about his death, about his resurrection, about his being the judge of all men, about the necessity of faith and repentance. And I would just put it to all of us today. Have you believed the gospel message? Those who believe the gospel message are to be baptized. And so praise the Lord, we have that opportunity today to see a couple of men who have professed faith in Christ. They're going to share their testimony with you. And, uh, just a few moments, I'm going to ask Kyle to come and then Rob to come. And then as they give their testimony, I just want to encourage you to listen and praise God for what he's done in their lives. And then there'll be a couple hymns sung after that. And uh, we'll get prepared and then we'll baptize them. So I'm going to ask Kyle if you would come.